Let's start with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And this time I really mean it. <laughs> never do that, you know. I never did before, God, but this time I really do. Okay. Um, I, I'd like to propose a, a couple of changes. I know. My experience with drunks is uh, the one thing we hate most is changes. Uh, we didn't do it like this last year, but I'd like to suggest we have a couple in this afternoon schedule. Um, if we've got a, a talk at, at 9 o'clock that will go until 10, and then we're going to have a break, and I'm going to see a couple of folks, and then 11 to 12 we'll have a talk here. That's normal so far. And then 12 at 12.15 is lunch. And then what happens after lunch? Anything you want. See? Now, if you need to go for a walk, go for a walk. If you would like to have a little meeting with four or five, have a little meeting. If you want to take a nap, take a nap. If you want to read the big book, read the big book. I mean, any of those things are fine. Until 4.30. That means you have an afternoon free. Now, if you're a junkie like I'm a junkie, that should make you very uncomfortable. Because you have four hours and no one's telling you what to do. It's not structured. I don't like it when it's not structured. Well, it's okay. You, you identify, do you? All right. Um, part of slowing down is getting some time. And for many of us, because we lead such busy lives, we haven't had four hours to ourselves in the last five years. And so it's okay to take the time. So if you need a nap or a book or if you want to, you know, just mosey around or talk to someone you don't know, that's perfectly okay. Right. So that's why I mean, it really is part of a retreat experience is that kind of free time. Um, I don't think a retreat weekend should be so exhausting where every moment, that's boot camp, that's not a retreat. <laughs> um, the, the schedule has a mass schedule for 3.45. I'd like to move that to 4.30. 4.30. And what that is, for those of you who have, have um, it's called a Mass, or it's called a Liturgy, or it's called a Eucharist. If it's been a while since you've been, it's in English now. Uh, and if you've never been, um, I'd like to invite you. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a time of prayer and meditation. Um, it's a form of worship that, that consists of some reading and some listening and some praying together, which is very familiar to most gay people, plus a certain amount of ritual which is a different form of prayer and meditation. Um, if you'd like to be present for that, you're most welcome. Um, you don't have to sign anything, you know, during it. And um, that should last perhaps half an hour, 40 minutes max. So 4.30 till a little after 5. Um, what else can I tell you about that? Uh, part of the ceremony, uh, I'll, I'll explain the whole thing as we go along. But as part of it was that the priest was supposed to um, drink a little wine uh, during it. And this was very dangerous if you were on antibus. Uh, or if you had gone through aversion treatment recently. So Pope Paul VI gave a special dispensation to alcoholic priests so we get to use grape juice. And we'll be using grape juice this afternoon. And if you'd like to receive from the chalice, you're most welcome. And it's user-friendly. Okay. Um, at 5.30 is dinner, not 5. So set your stomachs back half an hour. Okay, 5.30 is dinner. And then from 7 until 8 tonight, uh, I'll give a presentation. And then at 9 o'clock, we'll have the meeting. 7 to 8, I'll talk, and then even 8.30 if you want. I mean, that's your time, but we, it, it won't be as late as 9.30. Tomorrow, um, I'd like to give a talk between 9 and 10, and then break for a bit, maybe an hour, and then give a talk between 11 and 12. So instead of leaving, having things end at 11, we'd end at 12. And then you can rush back to the chaos that's in your lives there. <laughs> it, 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 some, and this is interesting, too. Some people, you'll look forward to retreat so much. It's like uh, uh, the week beforehand, the only thing getting them through is the fact they'll be on retreat. You know, wait till Friday night and I can get there. And then you get here and, and you're worried about back home. And sometime in the middle of Saturday afternoon, you finally land here. 
and then Sunday morning you got to get home. You don't have to go home. You know, I mean, hang out here as long as you need to hang out here, um, and we'll keep going till about noon, and then you can split afterwards. Okay. So that those are the so tomorrow instead of a a nine to eleven slot, nine to ten, then an hour of free time, and then you can pack your clothes uh, if you want to know what to do, and uh, then then eleven to twelve, and I'll give the final pitch then. Okay. Now if none of that occurs to you. I mean, you don't remember that. I have it written down here. Okay, so you can go and check it out. What are we doing next? Just follow the people in front of you. Okay. Um, I wanted to start this morning. Um, oh, and, and the list is pretty much full for folks who want to see me. Basically, I'll tell you to go to meetings and read the book and talk to your sponsor. So if you didn't see me, that is what I'll tell you. Okay. And I'll, I'll be out, um, I'll meet the folks, say, here, and then we'll just wander out there and mosey for a while outside as long as it doesn't get too awful out there. I wanted to start this morning by talking about uh, one of the traditions. I like moseying through some of the traditions because a lot of times we don't. Uh, it's what you read, you know, uh, on the first Monday of each month, you know, at your meeting or something. And, and we don't respect the we. Sometimes we don't listen to the traditions very much, and I think the traditions are a crucial determining factor in the way Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon have survived and changed. Uh, my, my one experience of being with a non-traditional group is uh, when I was a couple of years sober, I went to Sweden. Uh, I mentioned that last night, and I, I found out that AA in Sweden is very small. In the city of Stockholm, which has a million, million and a half people, there are 25 sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous who are Swedish-speaking. Then you got a little flock of Americans. You know, that's why the American Embassy is all... If you want to find out who's sober in a foreign country, call the American Embassy. <laughs> and there will be people there who are sober. In Moscow, you call the uh, Los Angeles Times. Uh, the foreign correspondents, because sober people, you know, and that's where, you always call the Moscow correspondent of the LA Times and he'll tell you where meetings are. Um, you find that out in the Helsinki. I mean, there are all these things, when you're in Helsinki, call this number and they'll tell you the next thing. It's feel very suspicious. Uh, but in Sweden, um, then you have about 40 or 45 Finnish speaking members of AA in Stockholm. And where do all the other people go? Because if you look around any AA group, there's an awful lot of blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. You notice that? So what about all the rest of these Swedes and Norwegians and Danes who are drunk? Well, as far as the Swedes go, um, Swede, the Swedes got AA directly from the hands of Bill Wilson. They sent a delegation over because they knew they had a serious problem. And they went and they talked to Bill Wilson, and it was like going, you know, Moses on Sinai. And, and, and Wilson gave them the traditions and the steps and so forth. So these Swedish drunks took it back to Sweden and improved it. <laughs> and what they, they noticed a couple of things. One was that the, the, the steps were too God-oriented. So they dropped a lot of that because Swedes are not into God. Uh, so instead of 12 steps, there were seven. And then they looked at some of these traditions and they said, these traditions are crazy. For one thing, according to these traditions, you can't throw anyone out. And that's bad, you know. Uh, so they changed that one. And then they said, uh, also, it says that, that uh, we ought to be fully self-supporting. And this is in the welfare state, you know, where everything is paid for. They said, why should we be self-supporting when we could get money from the government? So they do. Um, and they don't call themselves AA. They call themselves Lenkana. And Lenkana is largely a social group, and it does help some people stay sober. And whenever you talk about alcoholism or recovery in Swedish consciousness, they think of this Lenkana organization that is roughly equivalent to AA, but is really very, very different. Uh, it's not a spiritual program. It's a social group. And um, AA got started there, and, and, and in consciousness, Lenkana is for your average people, and AA is for snobs. Which I think is a wonderful switch, because here we figure AA is, you know, the last place where they can't throw you out, you know. <laughs> um, and in many, many ways in Sweden, AA is exactly the way it was in the United States before the Jack Alexander article. A lot of people just don't know about it. In fact, in foreign movies, 
if AA is mentioned, um, they don't translate Anonima Alcoholista in Swedish, they translate Lenkarna. So people don't even get the AA association issue. And then you have a little bit of alcoholism there, so. It's, it's very, so anyway, I, because of experiences like that, I've really learned to value the traditions which form us so. Um, like tradition number three, long form. Our membership ought to include all who suffer from alcoholism. Hence, we may refuse none who wish to recover. It says that in black and white. Now, I know groups that don't practice that. I mean, they do exclude people because they uh, are the wrong color or they're the wrong size or they're the wrong age or they sleep with the wrong person, you know. And you say, well, the tradition says we may refuse none who wish to recover. Then it says, nor ought AA membership ever depend upon money or conformity. You know? What? <laughs> uh, have you been to groups where they all have the group t-shirt and group cigarette? You know? <laughs> In this group, we smoke this, and we wear, we dress like this, and we, when we talk, we wear a tie, because we want people to be attracted to us. Oh. Uh, nor ought AA membership ever depend upon money or conformity. Any two or three alcoholics gathered together for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, provided that, as a group, they have no other affiliation. That's why some folks say that one of the greatest increasers of AA meetings in any given area is resentment. Because the meeting you've been attending did it wrong. You know, or they let them in or something, and so you boom out of a resentment, you form another group. Well, that's... I think that's God working through resentment, is what that is, because what it does, you, you don't have a meeting of a thousand people, you have, you know, dozens of meetings of hundreds of people, or scores of people, and I think that's wonderful. Um, but this is a funny kind of principle. We don't come into the fellowship known for our tolerance. <laughs> and if you're anything like me, I didn't have a lot of use for people that didn't look like me, and if they looked like me, I was suspicious. You know, uh, like you hear people talk, like women talking about how when they came into the program they didn't like women, or men coming into the program saying when they came into the program they didn't like men. You know, there are whole groups of people. I never talked to them. I never talked to those. I never. And and it's what happens by regularly going to meetings if God's grace is working is a lot of those rigid barriers start breaking down. Just start. We had one character come to a meeting where I was a regular, um, and he spent a lot of years in jail, and when you heard his story, you were thrilled you paid your tax dollars on time. <laughs> because that had built the prisons which kept him in there, you know. This was just an off, this was not a miscarriage of justice. This was an awful person, you know. Um, anyway, he got sober in jail, and uh, he was finally paroled, um, but he was still not what you would call a wonderful person. This guy was never known to smile, and he was filled with bigotry and intolerance, and, and he was so righteous and just awful. So uh, he would come to one of our meetings on a regular basis, and he wouldn't talk much because he was busy judging, you know. <laughs> but every so often he would, and one time he came in and, and he had a crisis. Whenever he had a crisis and he needed to talk, he would the core group he would talk to was a men's stag, of course. Where we all talk in deep voices and uh, have real problems, you know. Men's tag. Don't go to that wimp AA. Men's tag. Men, oh, well. <laughs> so he came in one night and he was very, very angry and very crazy. And we said, uh, you know, what's going on? And he said... Uh, Today, a black person asked me to be a sponsor. No, he didn't say black person. And he was just enraged. Just He hated them and hated everything about them. And back in 1942, and all this bullshit that was coming up. And so he ventilated, as we say. And uh, then we, he said, what should I do? And we took a group conscience. And we decided <laughs> that he probably really should sponsor this man. Now, we didn't know why this man wanted him to be a sponsor. 
but that was not our problem, you know. It was just so we said, you know, we think you're higher power, you know, maybe you could help him, you know. Uh, but anyway, so anyway, so things were fine for a while, and then about six months later, he came back in, and he was just eyes like that and crazy. And we said, uh, uh, "What's up?" And he said, "Today, a gay man asked me to be a sponsor." <laughs> And he did not say gay man, you know. He uh, and he was and he, again another 15 minutes of just this po- It was like you know, popping this this blister and all this poison was coming out. And, and when he got finished ventilating, um, we took a group conscience and said, <laughs> we think that uh, you know, I, we think you ought to do it. You know, I mean, this this who knows how God works. Um, and then about six months later, he came in again, and we've never seen him so strung out. And we said, what's up? And he said, well, it finally happened. We said, what? He said, today a nun asked me to be your sponsor. (laughs) And he laughed. And he laughed. And it was the first time in recorded memory that this man had ever laughed. (laughs) And and when that happened, I, I had a couple of reflections. One is, isn't it interesting how sponsorship works? You know, I don't know what he did for them, but they did a tremendous amount for him. They helped this man become a member of the human race. And I hope, I mean, it was just, you know, sponsor, we're the ones in charge. Uh, I think a lot of times it works just the opposite. The person you sponsor stretches you. Um, and uh, uh, also we found out, you know, it really does take time and people to soften up an awful lot of our hard things. And God doesn't do it in a vacuum. God does it to other people. And over time, he started to become a much more full and alive human being. But it took a long time. And and one of the first times I ever liked him was when he laughed. Because I never cared for the man before. <coughs> um, nor ought AA membership ever depend upon money or conformity. I think that is a brilliant principle. Um, AA even was not founded as a widely tolerant organization, as you may or may not know. Uh, when, when Dr. Bob was asked about this program, you know, what do you guys put together? He said, we have founded a Christian fellowship. And by that, he meant white Protestant male. That was the fellowship. I mean, as far as Akron, Ohio saw it. And the first women that tried to get in were not greeted with open arms. Because a lot of these old-time drunks, I mean, <laughs> I love this, uh, when, when alcoholic women started showing up to meetings, uh, all of a sudden these old male white drunks got very nervous about their reputations. <laughs> what will people say <laughs> if they know that we're hanging out with alcoholic women? Uh, because everyone knows what alcoholic women are, you know. That kind of thing. <laughs> Love it. So uh, I think it is a real um, uh, proof to the power of God breaking down that kind of resistance that women were brought in. And a lot of women. The first woman in Los Angeles that got sober was told the Alamon meeting was down the hall. You know, and they wouldn't let her in. I mean, can you imagine that? Then you had your problem. Very quickly, there were vast numbers of Irish Catholics who started coming in. And this was in 19, you know, the early 30s, and uh, Catholics were still, you know, not really welcomed in lots of places. Uh, still very much of an immigrant group. And Al Smith had just run for president uh, a few years before and had been stomped on. There was militant anti-Catholic stuff going around. And and then what happens when agnostics start showing up? Well, wait a minute. Uh, well, we have it right here, you know, where it's supposed to be different. And agnostics start coming in the door, and atheists, and people who aren't people who are Jewish, and people who are Muslim, and people who are Hindu. And all of a sudden, they start realizing that this is not just a group of baptized Christian white males. This is spiritual principles that all kinds of women and men from all kinds of backgrounds can get well here, and we had better let them in because God is bringing them to our door. Sometimes, I think in some fellowship, it's like a little Midwestern town where, where a stranger was talking to the mayor, and the mayor said, uh, but we're known for our tolerance in this town. Everyone gets along just fine. And the stranger says, oh, really? No religious frictions or tensions? He said, oh, no, none at all. 
And he, the mayor said, in this town we have representatives of the world's three great religions, and they just associate fine. And they said, and what the three great religions are those? And he said, Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian. <laughs> a little too narrow, you know, a little too narrow. Um, which brings me kind of to the subject of God, because... Um, I think we need to understand a couple of things. God as we understand God, that funny phrase in the book. I think as we understand is a process. We understand differently all the time. As we understand God. Um, there are a couple of things about God that I really do believe, um, and I'd, I'd like to pass these on. If you find them helpful, please use them, and if, if they're not helpful, ignore them. But, but sometimes, it, well, number one. It's important to understand that God is very big. God is really very big. There's a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And I think, I've never read the book, but I love the title. And I think for most of us, as we come into the program, and even some of us who've been around for a while, our God really is too small. And our God, lots of times, looks an awful lot like us, where God shares our prejudices. Well, God likes these groups and doesn't like those groups. Oh, really? Um, God told you that. It's right there in the book. Please, <laughs> give me a break. Uh, and, and what's kind of interesting is, as God, as I understand God, it's quite clear that God is an equal opportunity lover. You know? God has no taste. God really doesn't. God's primary activity is one of love and acceptance, and I think that's what drives us crazy, because you can't control that. You can't manipulate that, and you can't fix that. We're much more used to setting rules and regulations. You know, I was talking with someone this morning, it was like when we were being raised, if you were real, real good, you knew God loved you. And if you were a creep, what is that? Well, God couldn't love me. Wrong. God doesn't make those distinctions. We do. I was told at times, like, you'd, we'd be in church and I'd be picking my nose or picking my brother's nose. And, <laughs> and, and my mother would just be humiliated at that point and would come off with lines like, that will make God very angry. You know? Well, no, it really, God doesn't re God has no position on nose picking. Um, but it sure made my parents angry and they just couldn't say that, so they blamed God. You know, God will get very angry at you for that. I mean, we were told, with some things, and, and God, it was, we were told we were so powerful over God. You know, because certain things would just make God so angry, you know. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, see, I don't think God gets angry. Um, I think God is having a wonderful time. And it's the principle of attraction rather than promotion. You know, God invites you in, and if you're busy, you stay out. You know, but it, it's perfectly all right if you want to be self-obsessed and isolated. Uh, my understanding of God, by the way, they talk, God is love. My problem with that is I've heard it so often, I don't know what it means. And I, therefore need to find a definition of love that makes sense to me. And it's important to have, not that I figured it out and understand it, but just kind of makes sense to me. And a lot of times when we're talking about love, even in the fellowship, we think of hormones. I'm in love, you know. Um, and you need, it, you need someone to tell you you're in heat. You see, there is a, a difference. Lie down and don't sign anything. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> this too will pass. <laughs> I know you've never felt like this before, but believe me. You know. So a kind of a, a definition, you know, what is, what is a lover? How do you spot someone who's a lover? How, what, what understanding of God can you get in terms of God is love? Well, Paul has something. I don't like a lot of Paul. Um, I think Paul had a lot of bad days. And uh, <laughs> this is also, by the way, but some of Paul is really brilliant, but some of them is just awful. This is the one, I stopped reading the 24-hour-a-day book because they quote so much from St. Paul, and I would start the day angry. And I thought, you know, why start the day angry? Put that away. So I just don't read that anymore. Um, if it works for you, please use it. I'm so happy, but it just makes me very angry. Why do we say that? I thought, all right. 
Anyway, Paul does, in, in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13, Paul has a, a thing in here which is usually read at weddings, but you know who's paying attention, you see. This is what it says. If you want to know what love is all about, Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. You know, I don't think of patience and kindness as being having anything to do with love. Love is romance, you know, passion. Paul says, patient and kind. Okay, that gives me a start. Love is not jealous. I'm jealous a lot. But love is not jealous. If someone else is doing real well, a lover's thrilled. Happy, I'm glad it happened to you. And they mean it. You know? Well, like, I, I've had situations where friends of mine have succeeded and then I've gone into depression. <laughs> but love is not jealous. Uh, love does not put on airs. That's pretense. You know? Oh, the airs. I, well, I, I would never do that. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Really. Love is not snobbish. I don't associate with people like that. God does. Love is never rude. Gee, I can be rude. Ah. Especially after a couple of drinks, I would suddenly get inspired. It says, love is not self-seeking. Me first. Love is not prone to anger. Gee, I've spent years prone to anger. Um. Neither does love brood over injuries. Oh, I loved my injuries. Um, I loved my scars. And, and I had a gift after a, a social drink or two of, of resurrecting the scar as if it happened that morning, uh, where maybe it was 25 years ago. But I just resurrected the whole pain and anguish and lived in that and thought that was showed you what a sensitive person I was. No. <laughs> that shows you what a crazy person I was. Because it doesn't love doesn't brood over injuries. Love does not rejoice in what is wrong, but rejoices with the truth. There is no limit to love's forbearance, to love's trust, to love's hope, to love's promise, to, to love's power to endure. Love never fails. Um, there's some room for meditation there and some room for reflection there. And, and it's important for me when I'm talking about you know, God as I understand God, this is what I'm talking about. These are the qualities I see in God that I hope to share in. Uh, and these are the kinds of things I see with people who have some time on the program who are known for their love, you know, because they're patient and they're kind and they're tolerant you know, and they're not manipulative and they're not self-righteous and they're not busy telling everyone what's wrong with their program because they're busy being alive, you know. Um, so perhaps you might want to take a look at that section from uh, Corinthians sometimes. What else is true about God? Well, uh, sometimes we always, in English we refer to God, he, but God's not male. Nor is God female. Uh, sexuality is an invention. It's a creation of God, probably as an experiment, you know. Um, and, and all the results aren't in yet, you know, on whether it was a good idea or not. Uh, God, is, God is bigger than all that. God is not white or black or brown. You know? um, God is not racial. Again, race is, is another one of the inventions. Um, what else is true about God? Uh, in the 15th, 16th centuries, artists started painting pictures of God with big white beards. Yeah. And that's the first time artists did that, was the 15th, 16th century, Italy and, and those kinds of places. But, you know, that's just an artist's conception. And there's a problem with artists' conceptions. But some, I mean, some artists you like and some you don't. And some of us look at a work of art and figure that's God. 
I mean, a lot of us, when we think of God, we think of old man, white beard, you know, rocking chair, book, keeping score. Well, that was, that's, that's just someone's idea. Um, Or we think of God as being old, you know. Well, age is another invention of God. Um, God has no age. God simply is. So it's not an old man in the sky or an old woman in, it's, it's, in our culture, in our civilization, we have two distinct points of view about God. One of them comes to us from the Greeks, uh, Aristotle and Plato and all those folks. And, and they talked a lot of, in discussing philosophy and theology and, and what makes things work and so forth. And Aristotle, who is a brilliant person, comes up with a definition of God. Really does. Try this. Now, first of all, the Greeks do not like change or innovation. They hate it. They don't like movement. If things change, it means they corrupt, you see. Uh, things get born, they die. Things grow, they retard. Things expand, they, they impand, or whatever you do when you go in. Um, uh, they just, well, the, the Greeks were into the perfect, the perfect, implode, good word. The perfect, the eternal, the unchanging, and all of their vocabulary about God is just that. Perfect, eternal, unchanging. Um, so Aristotle wanted a perfect, unchanging God, and here was his definition. Now close your eyes for this to see if you can conjure it up. Aristotle said, God is thought, thinking itself. See? Now when I when I think of that, I want to drink. Um, I mean, it is so abstract, I don't even know what it means, you know. I, I mean, what color is thought thinking itself? You know what I mean? I need a visual, or I'm, I'm hopeless on that. But some people are quite impressed with the profundity. And, and um, you know, the Aristotle's in the Greek-speaking world, and there was a huge amount of the Jewish community that was Greek-speaking. They lived outside of Jerusalem, like in Alexandria and other places. And the scriptures they used were, they lost the Hebrew, so they translated the scriptures into the Greek. Uh, the legend was that they had, there were so many of the people um, who knew no Hebrew that, that the Jewish scholars were just terrified that a whole generation would be lost. So they had to translate the scriptures into Greek to, to, so they would be able to understand Moses and all that. So they had someone sitting in the middle of a room reading the scriptures aloud in Hebrew and they had 70 scribes, 70 scholars were sitting around and each one was translating into the Greek. So they had 70 translations. So they had 70 scholars translate for 70 days. And at the end of that, they had all finished their translations. They had finished reading the Hebrew scriptures. They were all in Greek. And they found that everyone's translation agreed with everyone else's. I don't believe it either. Uh, But that's the legend. And therefore, it was called the Septuagint. That's an old, very, it was the Greek speaking, the Septuagint, because 70, Latin Latin for 70 is Septua. Uh, Seventy scholars took seventy days, the Septuagint. But they translated this all into Greek concepts, too. So when Moses is on the mountain talking to the burning bush, uh, Moses goes on to the top of the mountain, and there's this bush on fire, but it's not burning up. And he noticed that. I wouldn't have. and then the bush speaks. Hello. And Moses noticed. I might have noticed that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Moses and, and the bush dialogue back and forth. And it's real clear. This is God. You know, this is the burning bush. Is, it, it's a wonderful symbol, by the way, because for one thing, you cannot grab hold of fire. You know, like you cannot grab hold of God. I mean, in fact, if you try to, you'll burn yourself. Uh, I like the image. I think it's very powerful. Also, it glows in the dark. Now, um, the bush gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Take these. And then Moses is supposed to take them downstairs to the folks down below and and start this whole business. Well, before Moses goes, he turns to the bush and says, By the way, what's your name? 
Now, let me uh, talk a little bit about cultures. Cultures are real important. When you, to understand anything that's going on, you need to understand the culture or it makes no sense. We, in this part of the 20th century, living in the United States, okay, so later 20th century Americans, are very informal people. We're on a first-name basis with everybody. We don't like titles. We don't like all that rigmarole. I mean, we refer to the president and his wife as Ron and Nancy. Yeah, I mean, just very, and I, I, you know, Mr. President seems a little too formal for some of us, uh, which is a sh Other cultures are really into titles, and you would never address someone by their first name unless you'd known them for 30 years. Uh, I mean, it was just, they, even some languages have you formal, you informal, you know. Um, Spanish does that, uh, usted and tu, and to, to, to talk to someone familiarly when you've only known them for five years is an insult. You know, crazy stuff. Okay. I mean, I think it's crazy because I'm an American, and I figure let's be on a first name basis with the world. You know? When we look at Moses saying, by the way, dear Bush, what's your name? We may say, culturally, as Americans, well, Moses is just trying to be friendly. He's not. He's not. Going back 5,000 years, what's going on there is names are very important and very significant. And names are power. And in terms of, of gods and priests and all of those folks, um, uh, the Verity Scriptures indicate that the Jewish community didn't think there was only one God. There were lots of gods. You know, they were the gods of the other guys, and there was our God, and our God, we had this relationship, but they all have gods too. And, and there is an arch enemy of the God of the Hebrews, and, and that was the God of the Canaanites, and it was a God named Baal, B-A-A-L, Baal. And Baal was a fertility god. And Baal was very powerful all over the Near East. And if you look through the Hebrew scriptures, you will find that Baal is regularly being condemned as the arch rival, you know. Well, what happened with Baal? How do you get a god's attention? Well, the concept, again, was that gods liked the smell of blood. So if you were going to get the god's attention, what you would do is slaughter a lot of animals. And, and then the, the stench is just awful. But gods get off on it, and so they would all show up, see? And you would have all these gods floating over, and Baal would be there, and then what you do, you, the priest would come, and the priest would call out the god's name. And once you called out the god's name, the real name of the god or goddess, you've got them. So you've trapped them, and they have to do what you say. So, religion, 5,000 years B.C., is an exercise in your power. Okay, real important, and some of us still do that, you know. I'm so powerful, God does what I want. All right. Now, um, Baal, by the way, also, what Baal liked best for sacrifice was human sacrifice. And throughout the entire Near East, you have people, if you really want to the God to do what you wanted to do, you would bring your firstborn son. And parents, and the way of sacrifice was by taking a little George, you know, who had been a discipline problem all week. Um, it does give a whole new insight on the, you know, family rules and regulations. Anyway, they take George downtown and they would throw their children alive on the burning pits and the kids would be burned to death. And this just got Baal very excited. And then you could get what you wanted. You see, by calling, because Baal would be there hungry, and you called the name, and you could force God to do what you wanted to do. This is called religion, 5,000 BC. Okay. Um, this footnote, ever, did you ever get bothered by the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham is told by God, sacrifice your son Isaac to me? And Abraham agreed and took the little kid up to the mountain and was ready to kill him. And an angel of the Lord came down and said, no, use a goat, you know, instead. And, and we said, well, see how much Abraham believed. You know, and we translated this as, oh, Abraham believed that some... I don't think that's true. I think that's misinterpreting it. I think Abraham knew that he had to sacrifice. You have to... The blood, God shows up with blood. Um, and, and Abraham was 
had no more consciousness than anybody else did in his time. And Abraham therefore figured he would sacrifice his son like everyone else is. And Abraham went up to the mountain to do it. And Abraham had a growth in consciousness. As he was ready to kill Isaac, it suddenly occurred to him, wait a minute. You know, God showed up and said, don't do this. And this is why the Jewish community of the whole group, they were the ones who never sacrificed their children. Because of that vision that Abraham had where he said, don't kill your child, go and, and get an animal to do it. We don't, we don't kill children. And that is a major leap in consciousness. And then it's a little while later before the Jewish community comes to the realization that there's only one God. God, as they understood God, took time. Took time. And, and you see the growth throughout Scripture. Okay. Back to Moses. Um, Moses says, what's your name? Because Moses wants to be able to call on God when Moses wants to call on God and force God to do what Moses wants, just like every, everyone else on the block does. And God responds to Moses, my name is, the Hebrew letters are Y-H-W-H, pronounced Yahweh, or Yahweh. So what's that mean? <laughs> well, if you're a Greek, you abstract, keep it abstract and unchangeable. And uh, we, we picked this up with the Septuagint, and for years and years and years, we, Yahweh means I am who am. If you saw Charleston Heston in the Ten Commandments, that's what it was. My only problem with that is, what does that mean? <laughs> it's like thought thinking itself. I am who am, excuse me. Um, oh, uh, a little abstract maybe. Uh, uh, the, Greek, the, the Greek community got very excited by this, by the way, because they said, oh, look, the God of Moses and the God of Aristotle are the same. Moses is pre, it's a, they're talking about, so God is equated to existence and ultimate reality and being, you know, and if you're off on the philosophy, there are centuries where people wrote about that stuff. My only problem, I mean, putting that all of your God, eternal, unmovable, unchangeable, I am who I am, and all that stuff, that's fine if that works for you, but that just doesn't happen to work for me very well. Um, I cannot turn my life and my will over to I am who I am. <laughs> For thought thinking itself. And that's why, as, as um, Pius XII, in, in my own denomination in the 50s, did a great boost for modern scripture scholarship. And one of the modern scripture scholarship things was, don't do the translations, go back to the original and see what was going on there. So you go back to the Hebrew scriptures to see what's going on in Hebrew, not Greek. And Hebrew is a completely different language. Greek... Greek has a zillion words and subtleties and refined stuff. Greek is an amazing language. Uh, just in senses of time and change. Is Hebrew is very simple. There's not a lot of words. The grammar is very clear. One word consequently has a lot of different meanings. Depends on context. And Hebrew is graphic. Not abstract. Graphic. For example, there are many words to describe the male, as in male-female, but one of them, the word literally translates, this is the one that pisses against the wall. <laughs> this is how you know it's male, you know? Well, I get a clear image with that. <laughs> and a lot of Hebrew, it deals in very concrete images. And, and so, in Hebrew, Yahweh, that Y-H-W-H, what does it mean? Uh, now, it's not going to be abstract. The closest translation we can come up with uh, is this. No matter what you do, I will never let go of you. That's the name of God. And Moses went, oh, 
Because see, Moses wasn't looking for that. Moses was looking for a quick name like Frank or Harry that he could use. And God says, no, wait, what we have here is a relationship dependent on me, not you. No matter what you do, I will never let go of you. Now, what we were told as kids a lot was, you know, if you, God will give you two chances and then it's over. You know, forget it. All right, do that one more time. And, uh, that is not true. God is constantly giving chances and choices. No matter what we do, God will never let go of us. That's our hope. How can I be sure I'm going to stay sober? You have nothing to do with it. How'd you get sober, sucker? <laughs> oh, well, I did. I No, you didn't. Sobriety is given. I mean, I tried to get sober, and it never worked. And what I need to remember is my sobriety, my serenity, my peace of soul is not dependent. I mean, I have to cooperate. I, I mean, I have to say yes. But the source is God. And that's one of the true things. The source is God for every human being. The source is God. I'm not the source for anyone else. If someone is using me as a source, they're in trouble and I'm in trouble. God is the source. Now, that was real crucial for me when I started getting involved with Al-Anon because I did not understand that. And I thought that I really had to worry a lot about people or they would never get well. And I loved the sense of worry. Worry is delicious. It really is. Um, and see, when you're real worried also, you know you love them, especially if they cause you to throw up a lot and lose sleep and you can't eat and you're nauseated and, you know, they're in jail again and what can I do? Uh, that's love, right? You know? And I had to find out. I, mean, I, knew, I reached a point where I could turn my will and my life over to the care of God, the care of God. And I knew God would take it, but I didn't think I could turn your life and will over to the care of God. And I had to be protecting you. See? And I had to find out that, that I can't protect. I have to get out of the way. I cannot be someone else's source. Now, maybe for a little while they're going to depend on me, you know, like a little child might depend. But the purpose of our relationship is for that person to be on his or her own two feet. And it might take a little time, but you have to let them know that God is the source, not me. Uh, I am not the mediator of all graces. Um, God's grace doesn't come through me. God's grace goes directly. And when I was able to do that, that gave me a lot of freedom in dealing with people. Again, just basic, simple Al-Anon. What I, well, I don't know how they're going to react if I do this. Well, that's not my problem, how they're going to react if I do this. That's their problem. What I know is X, Y, and Z is what I have to do. You know? And they're going to react however they're going to react. They'll be so mad. That's their problem. They'll be so disappointed. It's about time. <laughs> you know? I mean, getting the burden off, I, I carried a tremendous burden for you. And what I love, that what gets me in the Al-Anon more than anything else on this is two things. One is I, ha I have an exquisite sense of being a victim. I love victims. It, it just is a, it's a warm feeling for me to be a victim and to be misunderstood. And I can nurture that and be isolated by it and just rub the wound. You know, victim. Or, I like helping. See? And let me help you. Um, please, uh, call any time. I really mean that. You know, and I'll say that to several eight thousand people. Uh, I don't remember their faces, but I tell, call any time. And then they call at two in the morning and three in the morning and four in the morning. And then I'm, I'm pissed off when they call. I'm sleeping. What is it? Well, I... I, I have to find it for I am not the source. God is the source. And I have real limitations. And one of the things I need to do if I'm going to function is sleep some. And I, I, I know people who would get along on four hours of sleep. I don't. I mean, I feel like, I mean, I, I'm in the eight to ten category. 
and, I, and it's, you know, how awful. Uh, eight, nine hours a night, sometimes ten, and I feel real good all that next day. And, and, but I should be on four, you know. I mean, that's a, uh, if I were a better person, I'd be on four. Um, so I'll just try going on four for a while, and then I become irascible and crazy and can't stand people and overreact. And, and anyway, if I need eight to ten hours of sleep a night or six to eight hours of sleep or ni- hours a night, I need to make sure I get that regularly. So I unplug my phone at 11.30. And I have an answering machine. I love answering machines. Um, If you don't, get over it. Um, And then I plug it in at 9 in the morning. Because I've had the experience of you wake up at 7 and at 7.04, your first person calls hysterical. Well, I'd like to have a little more time to breathe before I start dealing with them. So I I unplug and plug the phone. I just find it wonderful. And I couldn't do that till I was in Alamon for four years. Because I needed you. I needed you. I needed your sickness to help me feel alive. Because if you were real sick and called real late, I knew I was important and valuable. You know, and I could love you back to hell, even though I hated you for calling me. You know, it just quit. So I have, I need to turn a lot over into God's care. On a regular basis. And God is big enough to take it. I didn't know that. I thought I surely should at least be involved, you know, in the process. Um, and then God can, can deal with me as, as God wants to deal with me. Um, in Hebrew, oh, but Moses, no matter what you do, I will never let go of you. I, that, to me, is tremendous consolation also. God's love does not depend on me. God's love does not depend on my reaction. No matter what I do, God's love towards me and to the whole human race is constant. Constant. And when we're talking, mean, I know folks in both programs and they say, well, now I love unconditionally. <laughs> I, I'm quite awed by that. I don't. I love very conditionally. Uh, God loves unconditionally. I mean, like I say, God has no taste. Uh, I, I, my love depends upon how I'm feeling and what I had for dinner yesterday and has anyone talked to me I like in the last two weeks I mean there's a lot of things that depend on my love and reactions to stuff I'm a very conditional lover and I just have to be heads up about that and not con myself I, I'm, I'm amazed my, my ability to love is really very fragile and I need, therefore, to make... When I get hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, I don't love much at all. You know, I judge real well, though. Real well. And usually accurately. Okay. <laughs> I want to do one other Hebrew word because I think it's an important word when we're talking about spirit and spirituality. Because there's a lot of hype in this stuff. I mean, you may have known that. Um, uh, some people, well, God forbid I should take anyone else's inventory, but I will. Uh, I have met some people, some of them go on television, and they introduce themselves as being very spiritual people. Um, I used to meet people who would always go out of their way to tell me how honest and ethical they were. And I would wonder, why are they telling me this? You know, why are you telling me this? Um, and I, my experience with people that I would consider spiritual is that they usually don't introduce themselves that way. You know, you, but you pick it up later. But they really are. So what's spirituality? Uh, what is a, I think everybody has a spirituality. I do believe that. For some of us, it is unconscious. And for some of us, it's conscious. Some of us can talk about it real nicely and verbally. Some of us can't. But all of us have a spirituality. So what is it? Uh, Some spiritualities are very healthy and some spiritualities are very sick. That's true also. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. R-U-A ruach. And like many other Hebrew words, it has many meanings. Um, Spirit. The Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim. Um, 
It also means wind. You see the ruach coming through. The, it also means breath. When God gave the breath of life to Adam, it was ruach. You see. So spirit, wind, breath. I, those are all logically connected. I really understand that that progression. And it also means disturbance or trouble. Hmm. How does that work? Well, the wind blowing across the desert brings with it a lot of sandstorm. And therefore, it can also mean disturbance or trouble. I love that. I think that's... Because some of us think the spiritual life, we should be placid. Well, sometimes there's trouble that comes with this business too. So we're talking about the Ruach Elohim. So what is spirituality? I think spirituality has a lot to do with attitude. Your spirituality is shown in your attitudes, be they positive or negative, and you can pretty much pick up someone's spirit just by listening to them chat, just by watching some people walk, you pick up their spirituality. Burdened. <laughs> With a brave little smile. That's what I love, you know. <laughs> hoping, hoping for years that people would think that I, was, that I had a terminal illness. That would explain so much, you know, if they only would understand. And I did. <laughs> um, I think spirituality, um, let me see. Let me explain it like this. When we come into the program, most of us are pretty shattered people. We have lots of different parts and categories all over the lot. Okay, this is true for, for both Al-Anon and AA. What happens with the program is we get fewer and fewer pieces. So things start getting together. We start being less factionalized. Uh, sometimes we talk in AA about Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll, by the way, was the nice guy. Mr. Hyde was the creep. I didn't know that for two years. Uh, a doctor sounds pretty good to me. So um, uh, if my problems with personality were only Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I'd be greatly relieved. But I also had a bad case of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. <laughs> and I never knew which one would come out. I mean, it was just a scattered... I did not know who I was. And over a period of time now, I find I have fewer and fewer personalities. And what's happening is that over time, I am becoming one person. Not yet, by any means. But I'm becoming one integral person. And I think that's a lot of spirituality. It's your integrity. Your spirituality is your integrity. If you're pretty much a connected human being who knows who he or she is about and can function as one person, you've got integrity, you've got... What is your spirituality? The spirituality uh, you figure out in your room alone. No, you figure out in conjunction. With who? With the rest of the human race. It's how I connect to other people. That includes my family, by the way. And I don't like that. Because I can deal with strangers real well, but my family drives me crazy, you know. But I, if I'm going, and I believe, I'm saying this for me, if I am going to be spiritually alive, I need to have some kind of relationship as far as possible with my family. I cannot live in resentment and rage at them. I have to come to terms with that. I have to maybe let them go with a lot of love, but I mean I have. And people who are close to me. It's how I connect to my family, to my community, to the rest of the world. One of our Congress people in, uh, in the Bay Area has a slogan that I like a lot. He says, think globally, act locally. Gee, I like that. Because I'm in a situation a lot of times where I love the human race, but I can't stand people. You know? The people next door I wish would just drop dead, but I love people in Ethiopia. Gee, it's just, let's send him another $75, you know, and then I set fire to the dog next door. Uh, and that is not having integrity. I'm not one person there. I'm at least two. And one of them is real sick. In fact, maybe both are real sick. I mean, I, the further you were away from me, the more I could trust you. That's not being a person. You know, that's being real fractured. So it, it's the connections. Um, and I find you know, my, my relationship with God 
has an awful lot to do with my relationship with you. I think it works like this. Then we'll break because it's 10 o'clock. I am God's first gift to me. If I am bitterly disappointed in me, I'm going to have a very difficult time dealing with God. I think that's true. I have to fall in love with myself to get well. And I find out now, I am the man I always was afraid I was. I mean, I used to dread some stuff about me. Oh, please, anything but that. And I find out it's true. I had better fall in love with that man. Or I'm never going to be able to deal with the being that created me. I am my first gift to me. You are God's second gift to me. And I had better deal with you. Sanely. And boy, that's why I need Al-Anon on a real healthy, because I don't know how to deal with you. I know how to let you dominate me, and I know how to dominate you, but I do not know how to be your peer. And I just to be at peace with that, and be able to say yes to you, and be able to say no to you, and be able to say my turn. You know, and I have rights too. Those are revolutionary concepts to me. God is God's third gift to me. Once I have a healthy relationship with me and a healthy relationship with you, I can have a healthy relationship with God. And for me, it goes in that order. Because um, I found most of my problems with God, I had lots of problems with God, which I'll talk about at 11, but most of them were because I was very screwed up about me and you. And And I mean... It gets real crazy. So there. Um, that's a couple of light ideas to start the morning. And uh, if any of that is helpful, I'm real glad. <laughs> um, and when I get back, I want to talk, the, the start off, I want to start with what is a picture of spiritual growth. Okay, a picture, because I need pictures, or I get abstract, and then I'm doomed. Why don't we end with the Lord's Prayer?